Okay, I don't know exactly how to segue from that into what we need to do next, but uh, I think it would, again, just be remiss if we don't take a minute. Um, Two Sundays ago, we were just praying together as a church family because some crazy guy went into a store in uh, Buffalo and shot up the place and murdered 10 people. Uh, that afternoon when we got home, we heard the news that just here in Orange County in Laguna Woods, there was a church shooting. The first shooting in Buffalo was, uh, was apparently based on racial hatred. The second shooting, which took place in Orange County, was, was apparently based on political unrest halfway across the world. And then, uh, as you all have heard by now, on the 24th, at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas, uh, there was another uh, massacre. 19 children and two teachers were murdered. 17 other people were injured. The murderer in that case was an 18-year-old sociopath who shot his own grandmother before he went to the school and shot up the school there. And so that is a community now that is reeling, and we as a country are now reeling. And I just think the only appropriate thing for us to do is the body of Christ. We feel somewhat helpless to stop it. Everybody's got ideas about what the politicians should do and what the laws ought to be and all that kind of stuff. But you and I just sit here going, wow, this is unacceptable. This cannot be. We, we don't want to live in a land where this is real. And yet this is what we're dealing with. And what can we do? We can pray. We must pray. So I just want to invite you to bow your heads with me. We're going to just take a minute and go before our holy God and ask for his mercy and grace to envelop all of these situations. Lord, even as we think about the shootings that happened a couple of weeks ago, um, the tragedies for those people involved is still very fresh and very real and very new. Um, the wounds are open and then we hear about this shooting in Texas. Father, an entire community is heartbroken as their children have been taken from them. And, and we don't even know what to say. We don't know what to do. We don't, we don't know where to go except to go to you. And so, God, we cry out to you now on behalf of innocent blood. We ask, God, that, that, that the their blood would cry out to you as well, that you would somehow intervene. God, we know that in your perfect wisdom, uh, you know what to do even when we don't. And we know that in your great power, you have the power to change the hearts of kings, to redirect the minds of even the mentally ill, to, to intervene, to protect. And we thank you for every person who was protected in those situations, all of which could have been somehow even worse. We thank you for the heroes who intervened and, and risked or even laid down their lives to protect others. But God, we also just want to pray that you would stop this, that, that there would not be more of these um, senseless murders that somehow, you, as your church, you, you would use us to, to shine a light where there's been so much darkness, Father. And we ask, God, that 
as a nation, we would not turn inwardly against one another, but that we would stand as one against evil. And we just want to thank you that you can handle all this. We pray, God, that you would guide us and direct us as we try to walk with you as American citizens during this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, as you know, with all of these shootings, as soon as the shooting stops, the blaming um, begins. Um, the, the politicians start posturing and figuring out how they can make this the other party's fault. And um, I specifically, on the day of the Texas shooting, went and turned on my television and, and went back and forth between a well-known conservative news channel and a well-known liberal news channel and watched the coverage on both of them and saw that they were two entirely different stories that were told because it didn't seem as if anybody was interested in the story or even the lives of the specific people, but they were more interested in pushing an agenda and figuring out how to blame the other guys. And um, that's what we've been hearing from our political leaders. That's what we hear in public debate. That's what you're seeing online. And I just want to remind us, my friends, we are the bride of Christ. We are the light of the world. We are the ones who carry the torch that brings light into darkness. And everybody in our country is feeling the pain of this right now. Certainly in those communities that were specifically targeted, they're feeling it in ways that we could not even imagine. And yet even as Americans, all of us are feeling the pain of this and we're feeling the pain, not just of the, of the horrific and horrible uh, reality that specific lives have been taken through murder, but we're also looking at a trend that shows just this growing darkness and evil in our society, and it is bad. So whatever your opinion may be of who's to blame, whatever your opinion may be of, of what we should do about this, no matter how strongly you hold those opinions, I think we can all agree about one thing. These murder sprees are evil. They're evil. Something is terribly wrong. And whatever your political persuasion, whatever your, um, your race, whatever your nationality, whatever your religion, almost everybody in the world looks at things like this and stops and goes, wait a second, this is evil. This is wrong. Something is terribly wrong. No sane person thinks this is okay. No sane person thinks that nothing is wrong with what happened in all three of those murderous incidents, not to mention all of the other atrocities that take place on a day-by-day -day basis in this broken world in which we live. And I'm not trying to be uh, overly dramatic, and I'm not trying to make a bigger deal than this is. The fact of the matter is, my heart is broken. Many of your hearts are broken as well, because this is evil. This is wrong. We know that. We know that it is, it is wrong. We know it's wrong when human rights are violated 
around the world. We know that it's wrong when, uh, when villages in Africa are raided and parents are killed in front of their children and the children are taken to become soldiers or uh, child brides. We know that it's wrong when women and children are bought and sold in the open market. We know that it's wrong when parents abuse their children. Nobody argues about these things. Nobody has to be asked, is that okay or is that not okay? Everybody knows that it's wrong. And that's important for us as we study this picture of the gospel that Paul is giving us in the book of Romans because that's the beginning of his argument. If you remember last week, I held up a, a kind of a poster board that showed crooked lines and a straight line. And the reason that we all know what a crooked line is is that we know what a straight line is. And because God has placed it in our hearts, we are aware that there is right and there is wrong. There are just some things that are wrong, and we all know it. And unfortunately, we've been seeing that lived out in our world right before our eyes, so many examples of that. So for the last three weeks, we've been talking about bad news just like that. In the book of Romans, Paul begins his summary of the gospel with a clear description of the bad news. If you haven't been with us the last three weeks, um, I encourage you to go listen to the podcast, watch the video. Last week we had some technical difficulties, so we don't have video from last week, but we do have a podcast if you haven't heard that message. Um, but we've been talking about bad news. If you are here this week and you are just visiting for the last couple of weeks, I'm just astonished that you would even think of coming back. I'm just blown away because these sermons have stunk. It has been awful to look at what the scripture has to say about the condition of the hearts of men apart from Christ. And I don't want to talk about it and I don't want to preach about it and I wish that it wasn't true, but we see it with our eyes every day and then we open the book of Romans and Paul outlines it for us and we have to talk about it. The fact is there's been a ton of bad news and none of these sermons has been any fun. And Paul has basically told us that though God is undeniably good and God is undeniably holy and God is undeniably kind and just, we humans are undeniably rebellious. And we are, as the book of Romans says, without excuse. And that's what he tells us in chapter one. He tells us this long list of sins and wrongdoings and he talks about how people because of their sin are under God's wrath. Turn over to page two. You get to chapter two and he tells us that it's not just those bad people who are guilty of these things. It's so easy for us when we see some sociopath shoot up a school and we go, wow, that is an evil person. That is a bad person. But to then stop and go, Paul says in chapter two, it's not just the bad people that we put in the category of bad people, but those of us who judge bad people, because though we may not commit the same sins, we all have the truth written on our hearts, and we still commit sins, and therefore we are just as guilty as anybody else. And so he tells us that in chapter two. We get to the third page of Romans, and he starts telling us about the, the evidence for this guilt, 
And he says that um, this crooked line is a picture of all of our lives and we are without excuse. And in chapter three, he makes it even more clear that even if you are really religious, you're still without excuse. Every one of us is guilty. In fact, he says to those of us who are really religious, the more familiar you are with God, the more familiar you are with the word of God, the more familiar you are with the prophets and the law, the more guilty you stand before God because you are rebelling knowingly against the law that is not only written in your heart but written in the word. So, isn't this fun? Three chapters into Paul's description of the good news, and we haven't heard any good news yet. All we hear is a lot of bad news. And then just in case anyone is still not following him on this, Paul decides that he's going to summarize all of this by quoting the Old Testament, and he's quoting Isaiah and Psalms in Romans chapter 3. So take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 3, and we're going to pick up this wonderfully good news in Romans chapter three, beginning in verse nine. This is Paul's summary, and and 99% of what I'm about to read to you is quoted from either the book of Isaiah or the book of Psalms. He's just putting together what the Old Testament teaches on this subject and putting it all in one place for us in Romans nine to summarize his argument, beginning in Romans three, verse nine. He says, what then, are we better than they, speaking of Jews, Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Now here it comes. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes." Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Wasn't that fun? Wow. I mean, just in case any of us are like, well, I mean, he, he's, not, he's not saying everybody's guilty. He's not saying everybody's bad. How many times in there does he say, there is none who does good, not even one. There is no one who seeks after God. You're like, wow, seriously? All of us? That's what you're trying to tell us? All of us? Guys, this is the doctrine outlined for us that, that theologians call the doctrine of total depravity, the depravity of man. Remember we saw in chapter one, it says that because of our sin, God gives people over to depravity so that your life does not work the way it was intended to work. You're broken, he says. And so they're talking about this picture of total depravity. Now, just let me put on my theologian hat with you for a second here and explain some terms because as we get into this picture in Romans of the gospel, 
we're going to dive deeper than just the surface. We're going to have to give some consideration to challenging and complex doctrinal ideas. Some of those ideas may not even sit well with you. They may not sit well with me, but we're gonna dig into the scripture and go, what is God trying to say here? Because would you not agree that even if you feel strongly about it, if God disagrees, he's right, correct? So we're gonna dig into his word and we're gonna look at this and we're gonna talk right now about this issue of depravity. The issue of total depravity does not mean that nothing you do is good. All of us do some good things if we measure good relatively, right? Relative to other choices we had, we might have made a good choice. Relative to another evil act, your choice might be seen as good. And even, even wonderful things that we do, we make contributions to help the hurting, we, we serve others, we, we minister to people's needs, we make sacrifices for those that we love and even for those we've never met. All of those things are relatively good But total depravity says not that nothing you do has any good in it, but that nothing you do is completely good. In other words, your depravity, my depravity apart from Christ, reaches every corner of my existence. So even when I do something good, there is a certain amount of selfish motive to it. Even when I do something good, even when I make a selfless choice, it's never totally selfless. Every part of me, my mind, my will, my emotions, my body, my social life, every part of me is marred by sin. That's what he's saying when he says there is no one who does good, no, not one. Doesn't mean that there's nothing that's relatively good, Our depravity touches every corner of our lives so that nothing we do is totally good. And remember, when it comes to our moral uprightness, we're not judged by comparison to another person. We're judged by God's standard of holiness and moral perfection. And when it comes to that, none of us measures up. We are all broken. We are all selfish. We are all rebellious. We are all stained by sin. Paul just doesn't let up on us. He keeps making this point over and over. If it was something he just alluded to, then I would be so happy to just allude to it myself and move on to happier topics. But he doesn't allude to it. He beats it to death. And he keeps telling us over and over and over again how broken we are. He makes this point that irreligious people, although they may have no religion, are still guilty before a holy God. And then he makes the point that religious people are guilty before a holy God. And then he makes the point that judgmental people are guilty before a holy God. In other words, he's telling us what we already know. Something is terribly wrong. And he's been making this point for three chapters. Now, let's pick up his argument in verse 21 because I said last week that we've been eating Brussels sprouts, but there's cake coming today. We're about to get to the cake, my friends. Pick it up with me in verse 21, chapter 3, the book of Romans. But now... Okay, wait a second. 
if you have a pen or a highlighter or something, you need to highlight, underline, circle, and star those two words, but now. We have just had two and a half chapters of steaming poop dumped on our heads. And then we get to verse 21 and we find this incredible two words, but now, but now, but now, it's not the same anymore. Something has changed. God has intervened. He says, but now, he's just been telling us that there's nothing we could do to save ourselves but now, he's just been telling us that we're broken beyond repair. But now, he's just told us that there is none who does good, not even one. But now, he said, I don't care how religious you are, you're still guilty before a holy God. But now, <sighs> now something has changed. Now we turn the corner. Now they take away the plate and they bring the dessert plate. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This is to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. Verse 26, for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is the boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles only? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. But now, God is rewriting the story, but now, God is intervening, and he's going to talk to us, guys, about um, justification, and he's going to talk to us about propitiation, and he's going to talk to us about redemption, and he's going to talk to us about righteousness, and all these other giant stained glass words that you only hear in church, and, and that means that we have finally, finally, finally arrived at the good news. <sighs> and we're gonna define those big stained glass words in a minute. But first, let's think about this whole passage in its context and let's think about some of these key words, right? So, he talks about beginning uh, in verse 21 that it's apart from the law that righteousness is available to us. Verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, being justified, justified. 
It's so important that we understand what these words mean. Some of these are words you don't use on a regular basis. Others are words that you use but maybe don't understand the meaning here in the doctrine that Paul is giving us. So we're gonna tear it apart. Let's begin with the word justified. The word justified is a legal term. It has to do with your legal standing before a righteous judge. It means that you have been exonerated of the charges that have been brought against you. It does not mean you didn't commit the crime. It means that you have been deemed not guilty. It means that you stand before God as one who has been excused, exonerated, pardoned. You are legally not guilty before God. Now you say, well, what did God do? Just turn the other way? He didn't see all of this sin? Oh no, we've just been reading for two and a half chapters that God sees it all, right? He knows what's going on in my heart. He knows what's going on in my mind. He knows what I'm doing with my hands and my feet and my mouth. He understands all of that. And yet, as Paul is going to explain to us, he has still chosen to make it possible for you and for me to be found not guilty. Now, I'm not going to name anybody by name, but we have all seen examples of legal cases throughout the years where everybody knew that the person committed the crime. But for some reason, either a really good lawyer or a technicality or maybe something that the police did wrong when they made the arrest or whatever, on some technicality, this person gets off. And that person is deemed at the trial not guilty. It doesn't mean they didn't do anything wrong. It means that they will not be held accountable for what they did wrong because they have been found not guilty. Guilty. And by the way, the reason that in our American system we don't have double jeopardy and you cannot be retried for a crime in which you have already been tried for is because that comes from God's example who tells us that once you have been deemed not guilty by the righteous judge, you are now and forevermore not guilty. So that the enemy may come and whisper in your ear and tell you that you're guilty and tell you that God will never forgive and tell you that you've ruined everything and God will never hear your prayer and he will never take you back. He says, no, no, you're justified. If you are in Christ, if you have a personal saving relationship with Jesus Christ, you are justified. And then there's another word. This one is more familiar. In fact, this is the smallest of these words. It's only five letters, but it might be the most important five letters in the English language. The word is grace. Grace. And and grace basically means unmerited favor. You have been justified not by works of the law, not because you didn't commit the crime. You have been justified, God says, by grace which means unmerited favor. And there's a difference between mercy and grace even though God gives both to us. The best way I can say this in simplest terms is that mercy means you do not receive the punishment you deserve. That's God's mercy. You don't receive the punishment you deserve. Grace is that though you deserve punishment, you receive blessing. 
That God gives you what you do not deserve despite what you do deserve. And so he pours out his grace, which is why throughout the ages the church has sung this song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And the words go on to describe how you cannot find God on your own, but he comes and finds you, plucks you up out of the muck and makes you new and gives you new life. If that's not amazing grace, I don't know what is. So we are justified, Paul says. How are we justified? By grace. And that involves redemption. Again, verse 24, being justified is a gift of his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. That's another big $5 word. Here's what redemption means. It means to be bought back. It means to be rescued from captivity, from someone outside who comes in and pays a price to get you out. So when we think of redemption, we might think about, um, say, a war situation, and this side has prisoners of war, and this side has prisoners of war, and the, the uh, leaders discuss it, and they make a deal and say, we're going to send you these 10 guys, and you send us those 10 guys. We're going to use these 10 guys that you want to redeem these 10 guys that we want, and we're going to have a prisoner swap. That would be a redemption. Or perhaps if you want to think in Old Testament terms, think about the nation of Israel, 400 years in slavery in Egypt, and God comes, miraculously intervenes, and redeems them from slavery, and gets them out of captivity, and gives them new life. That is what it is to redeem. So you're justified. How are you justified? By grace. And what does that involve? Your redemption. God brought you, bought you back. You were a slave to sin. If you're a Christian today, you were a slave to sin and now you're free. How did that happen? By God's amazing gift of grace and redemption. And that leads to this fourth word, and this is a word you probably have not used once this year. Here it is, propitiation. And in some of your Bibles, it might say atonement. But the word propitiation is probably the more precise of the words. The problem with that word is nobody knows what it means. So I'm going to take a minute and try to give you a picture of propitiation. The Romans to whom Paul was writing understood this because they lived in a pagan society that was built around paganism. There were temples all over the Roman Empire where people would go and make sacrifices to appease the anger of the deities that they worshipped, right? And the idea was that that once you make a quote-unquote God angry, you're going to have to give him something to get him off your back. And so even today, in so many religious systems, this is how people try to approach whoever they think God is. I'll bring you something, I'll do something for you, I'll sacrifice something, and when I do, you'll give me a break and you'll let me off the hook. It's how you appease the anger or the wrath of a deity in paganism. Now, that doesn't mean it's a purely pagan principle. Here's what we have to understand. The propitiation that the scripture talks about is not the same as the pagan idea of propitiation where I give God something so God gives me a break. Actually, God's wrath, we're gonna begin theologian hat here. God's wrath, 
As much as we're uncomfortable with it, as much as we wish he didn't have all this wrath that is described to us in these first couple of chapters, God's wrath is the necessary partner to God's justice. If God is just, which he is, then he must have wrath. He cannot simply look the other way. He cannot simply pretend. He must mete out justice. And, and there's nothing, even if he wanted to, which he does not, but even if he wanted to, he could not be unjust because justice is who he is. It's not just what he does, it's who he is. And since we are all sinners, and since there is none who does good, no, not one, nothing you or I could do could provide enough payment to pay the debt that we owe to appease the wrath of a just God. So if there is to be propitiation from the one and only true God, it has to come from God. The propitiation cannot be an offering that you make to God. It must be a propitiation that is an offering that God makes to himself. Only he can afford to pay the price. So Christian propitiation is not like pagan propitiation. It is not, man, say that three times fast. No, don't. Um, It is... It is, it is entirely different because it is not we who bring anything to God. What did he just say? He said, there is none who seeks after God. That apart from Christ, we don't even seek after God. We don't even want a relationship with God. We wouldn't even try to pay off our debt even if we thought we could. The only way for my sin debt to be paid would be if God himself pays it. He must not only be the propitiator, he must be the one who pays the propitiation. So because of his love for us, he sent his son to become our propitiation. Now, you're gonna to wanna to keep your finger in Romans, but I want you to turn to the back of your Bible, the book of 1 John. Now, if you get to Revelation, you went just a little bit too far. 1 John's at the very end of your Bible, before you get to 2nd, 3rd John, then Revelation. Just a little book, 1 John chapter four. Don't go to the Gospel of John. That's a big book at the front of your New Testament. This is a little book at the end of your New Testament. It's called 1 John. Now, I want you to go to 1 John chapter four, and in 1 John chapter four, we're gonna pick it up in verse nine. By this, the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So this propitiation that God offers is not even um, something that he does. He doesn't love us because of the propitiation. John argues that it is because of the propitiation, it's because he loves us that He becomes our propitiation. His love proceeds his salvation for us. He loves us, and because he loves us, he becomes our propitiation. He sends his son to die for us, and there is no other way. Jesus himself said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Jesus himself said that unless the Son of Man be lifted up on the cross then nobody can have a relationship with God. 
He had to pay the price because there is none who does good. No, not one. There is none who seeks after God. Not even one. If he doesn't pay the price, the price cannot be paid. And he loves us. So he pays the price. And why does he pay the price? Out of pure grace. It's a gift. We who could not justify ourselves have been justified by the gift of his grace when he redeemed us by becoming our propitiation and none of that depends on our works or our worthiness. It comes to those who believe by faith. That's it. And we're gonna be tearing that apart for the next several weeks and looking at what that actually means in our day-to-day life. But by the way, this gift that God gives us, Ephesians chapter two argues that even the faith to believe is a gift of God's grace. That apart from that, you could not believe. So we're utterly and completely and totally dependent upon God for our salvation. We could not even muster the belief on our own. God has to give us the grace to have faith and believe. And what is the result in the ending of all that? Let's go back to chapter three of Romans. Pick it up in verse 25. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith, This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness. He demonstrates his own righteousness in this. At the present time, so that we would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Who is justified? The one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is the boasting? Are we gonna boast about our worthiness? Are we gonna boast about our good works? Are we gonna boast that we have the right religion or we go to the right church or we memorize the right verses? He says, where is the boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Because they're the ones with the law. Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. I know that's a lot. But let me summarize. We were wrecked. We were helpless. We were without hope in our sin. And that sin had separated us from God, no matter how relatively good you might be compared to somebody else, no matter what your ancestry, no matter what your education, no matter what your religion, no matter what your nationality or your race, you're separated from God by your sin. You and I are all in the same boat. He sums it up in verse 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But now... But now we can be justified. But now because of what he's done, we can be redeemed. But now we can be forgiven. But now we can be restored. And it all happens by his grace, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There's no other way for anyone to be saved. There's no other way. So God made a way. 
There was no way we could pay the price for our own sin. So God paid the price. There's been a lot of bad news. But it all leads up to the very good news that you and I can have real life in Christ, not because we're good enough, but because he's gracious enough. If there was another way, God would have provided it. But there is no other way for a holy and just God to receive a broken and sinful person. If we're to be justified and made new and be reconciled to God and have eternal life, it can only happen by his gracious gift of Jesus Christ, who died to pay the price for our sin, who rose again on the third day to give us new life. So stop trying to earn favor with God. You're running on a treadmill. You're getting nothing but tired. Trying to impress God, trying to be good enough, trying to carry the weight of your own burden. It's impossible. Stop trying to work your way into God's favor and instead simply receive the free gift of God's grace that justifies you, that redeems you, and that gives you new life. I don't know anybody's heart. I don't know as you listen to the words of Romans 3 today, where you're at in your journey with God. I don't know whether this is new to you, whether you had a different understanding, whether you thought that just sort of being in the right religious circles or, or doing penance or lighting a candle or making a sacrifice or writing a check or whatever it is we think we need to do to impress God. I don't know what you thought about that. But boy, if you leave here today, know just this one thing. God loves you so much that he became your propitiation because you couldn't do it for yourself. He loves you. He invites you to receive this free gift of grace. Wherever you are today, if you have not yet received that free gift of grace, if you have not yet submitted your life and admitted that you can't save yourself and you need God to intervene and give you new life, if you have not yet come to the point where you've said, you know what, Jesus, you're not just gonna be an idea to me. I'm going to be yours and you're going to be mine and I'm gonna follow you as Lord and Savior. If you've not invited Jesus to be the Lord of your life and begun to follow him, I wanna invite you right now. I'm just gonna ask you wherever you are, just bow your head, close your eyes. If you already know the Lord, be praying right now for those who might not. And let me just give you a second to think about the depth of what has been shared. It's no fun to think about how broken we are. There's something that makes me defensive and once makes me want to fight back, but as I look at the argument of Scripture, I realize that I have no leg to stand on. And if you've come to that point right now and you know that if you were to stand before God, you would have no argument to make for your own holiness. Now is the time for you to say yes to Jesus who offers to be your life. You cannot save yourself. You cannot be good enough. You cannot work your way into God's favor. But Jesus is our sacrifice. Jesus is our propitiation. If we will accept 
the grace that he gives to us. And in exchange, let him be Lord of our lives. His word says that he will come into our lives, make us new, and give us eternal life. So wherever you are right now, if you would just maybe want to pray to invite Jesus to do that, you might pray something like this. Dear Lord, I know that I'm lost in my sin. I admit that I cannot save myself. I know that I'm guilty. But by your grace, I also know that you've made a way. And so I accept your free gift, your offering of love and forgiveness, Lord. Come into my life. Become my Lord. Lead me, guide me, and I'll give you my whole life. Please, Father, I receive your gift. In Jesus' name, amen. And if you've already received that gift, then just a quick word for you. Stop trying to work to maintain it. You didn't work to get saved. You're not going to work to stay saved. I have some great news for you Christians in the room. That same grace that was strong enough to save you is strong enough to hold you. Hallelujah. Isn't that good? God holds us. That hand that makes it possible for us to be saved is also the hand that holds us and will not let us go. The word says that we cannot be snatched out of the Father's hand. And that everything that he has done for us, he's done once and for all. So again, the message here is stop trying to impress God. Let God live through you. Draw near to God, he draws near to you. And as he draws near to you, you are transformed into his likeness. And you begin to live differently because you are different. Stop trying to, to um, live differently in order to become different. He already said you're new. If anyone is in Christ, old things pass away. Behold, all things have become new. If you're in Christ, he wants you to hear him say, hey, take my burden and give me yours. For my burden is light and my yoke is easy. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Some of us are just weary and heavy laden because we've been trying and trying and trying to just be more religious. And God is saying, oh, if you just let go, lift your hands and let me take control. Everything will change. Father, we just want to say thank you that you love us so much that you did not leave us in our completely helpless and hopeless state. But that, that before the foundation of the world, you set your love on us so much so that you sent your son to be our propitiation to set us free from our brokenness and sin. Father, I pray that if anyone has invited you into their lives for the first time today, that you would answer that prayer, spark new lives in their heart, and give them steps now to just begin to walk in fellowship with you. I pray for each of us that has been carrying around this burden of religion, that you would just help us to throw it off and accept instead your yoke, which is easy, and your burden, which is light. Father, we come to you because we are heavy laden. We come to you without any awareness of what we can do to fix this broken world. But our hearts are broken, as yours is as well, by the brokenness of people. So give us your compassion. Give us your light. Give us your grace that we might pour it out upon others. 